Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. Uh, I'm joined today by Arnold Kling uh, to talk about the COVID-D virus and uh, where it's been, where it is, and where it's going. And Arnold has been following this quite closely. Arnold blogs at uh, arnoldkling.com blog and something I think everybody ought to follow every day because he is uh, an original thinker about, uh, about this issue. Uh, Arnold's been a guest on the show before. He holds a PhD in economics from MIT. He's written two fantastic books, one called Specialization in Trade, which bears on the economic issues that we're going to be facing post-virus. And he's also written a very interesting book called The Three Languages of Politics. Arnold, welcome. Well, thanks, Bill. Uh, I guess the where I'd like to go, there, there are three things or four things that I'm interested in. And the first one is, how do we know what we know? Are we getting the right data and smart science from our health authorities? And what's the most effective way to handle the spread of the virus? And thirdly, what's the best way to deal with the economic crisis? And lastly, uh, when this resolves, what uh, the dust settles, what do things look like going forward? So Arnold, you've written in a bit about, maybe a fair amount about, are we getting the right data? And are we getting smart science from our health authorities? Thoughts? And, well, I've been very disappointed on that score. Uh, when you read, you know, the, the data is being presented that we're getting is like on you know, number of cases and number of deaths. And it's being presented in very elegant formats with fancy charts. And, it, and it's being fed into computer models. Oh my goodness, computer models. They must be able to predict anything down to the fourth decimal place. And it's garbage. Uh, just to take an example, uh, my next door neighbor uh, had, was sick and decided he would get a test. That was six days ago. He still doesn't have the results. Now, just picture what, what that will do to the statistics if, if the test results are being reported with a one-week lag. You know, you're, you're, trying to me you're trying to look at the data and measure growth rates but you've got a mix. Maybe some people's tests are being reported the same day. Other people's tests are being reported with a seven-day lag. And so you don't really know the actual growth in cases in a given day. And that's no. just one of many examples of what makes for bad data. Now, if you want to do it scientifically, you don't just take whatever comes in from people using different tests, different lags, um, different uh, caliber of people doing the test. Some tests have, are biased toward false positives. Others are biased toward false negatives. Scientifically, you have the investigator decide who gets the test. And you say, all right, I'm going to pick a sample. Typically, the most scientific approach is a random sample, but you might stratify it in certain ways. But let's just say you're taking a random sample uh, let's say in a community of, you know, a couple hundred people, you take a sample of a couple hundred people, you make sure they're all tested at the same time, using the same type of test, 
using people who are trained to administer it in a particular way. And you take the results from that and you draw inferences and maybe you do follow-up tests subsequently. Um, but you, my point is you have to take, think of it as a scientific investigation, not, oh, I'll just take whatever data comes in that gets reported by people who you know, are busy thinking about how to treat people, not thinking about how to test the most, sci the most scientific way. Who, who, is who is doing the testing? Um, how is this being pulled together? And is our problem as the ordinary American not, not knowing what the test results are? Or do the testers not really have a good picture of where they are? Well, people have different purposes. The people who are doing the testing are healthcare workers, and their main goal is to know whether they've got a COVID case or not, do, because that helps them decide whether to isolate the person or not. I assume it doesn't really tell them how to treat because the person either needs a ventilator or doesn't need a ventilator. Uh, so the testing gets them to decide, you know, whether to send the person home and out in the world or tell the person that they have to be isolated. Uh, of course, that doesn't help a whole lot if, it, if the test doesn't come back for a week, but there you are. Well, do you, uh, one of the things you've been following us closely is that, you know, we don't know how serious the disease is, whether the, whether you test it and it's mild or is it life-threatening. Um, we also don't have a very clear picture about where the disease is, is occurring uh, by county or by zip code or whatever. And I don't have a good feel for how fatal this disease is. I mean, is this something like uh, the Spanish flu where half the people who got it died? Or is it something like the common flu where it's less than 1% or, you know, what, what's your sense of, of what that is or, or do we even know? I would not guess at all. Um, and I think mo even people who are quote unquote experts are just guessing wildly. Um, here, you know, basic problem, A, we don't know how many people currently have the virus. You know, there are some people who insist that there are 10 times the number of people actually with the virus as the number of reported cases. Others say, no, that's not plausible. It can't be more than double, well, even double. You know, is a, you know, creates a huge distortion in the numbers. So we don't know how many people have it. That's why I wanted to do the random sample. The other thing we don't know is how many people have had it. That's a different test. It's called an antibody test. It, you test to see whether you have the antibodies so that your, your body has uh, immunized, is trying to immunize itself against the virus. So you might show up as negative for the virus itself, but have the antibodies. And that's actually great news. That means you've already gone through having the virus. So we have no idea what proportion of the population uh, is, is like that, that they've had the virus and they have the immunity to it. That would be tremendously valuable information. When you again, look there's no scientific study of that. When you, when you look at the people standing with the president, uh, the experts in the Rose Garden, and they're giving us information about where things are, what degree of reliability uh, should we have and what we're being told by them? Well, I don't have much because I don't believe that they have any better data than what we have, uh, or not significantly better. I don't think they're conducting scientific tests. I mean, 
another here's another question that should be on everyone's mind it's what i called sort of the um the doorknob effect if if i have the virus and i open a door and you're the next person and you touch the same doorknob you know what are your chances of, of getting sick that's a great question the only answers we get were are like well the virus can live on this kind of surface for this long but we don't know does the virus live in concentration? Does it, you know, can it still, you know, get into your respiratory system? I think the only way to know that would be to actually test it with human beings. And you might say, oh, that's what an awful thing to do. How can we experiment when people's lives are at stake? But in fact, we're experimenting now. Everything we're doing is experimental, but they're not, they're not scientific experiments. We're not doing controlled studies. We're not um, we're not learning from the experiments that we're doing. So uh, the governor of Maryland, as you may know, just announced that, you know, that as of 8 p.m. tonight, people aren't supposed to leave their homes except for essential things. That's an experiment. It's not, there's no, you know, there's no science behind that. It's, it's his guess as to what's best. But we could try other experiments and try them in a controlled way and actually see what works rather than just go on the basis of guessing. Well, yeah, I'm looking into that now. We've got 10 pages of detailed instructions about uh, what we can do and what we can't do. You've, got, you've, you've written very interestingly about something we've called the scarves and masks solution. One of the things that New York has done, Connecticut has oh, done, yes. Hogan's now doing in Maryland is that he's taking a one-size-fits-all. The way to deal with the spread of this is to make everybody stay home. You're not so sure. Yeah, I, I think I would love to see everyone told you can go out and go wherever you want like this. And it would be interesting to take two communities that we think are about equal in size and equal in prevalence and let one let people rip with the scarves and mask strategy and people won't won't be the most hygienic that they could be i mean to be perfectly hygienic you have to you know wash your scarf regularly wash your hands regularly maybe you know take off your clothes when you get in the house and put them in the wash and i mean there, there, you know, there's there's degrees of of care that you can have, but just let people be reasonably careless other than saying, you know, nobody go out in public without, uh, without something over their face. They have one community do that, have another community do this social distancing and see what the difference is. My guess is that the difference would be pretty small, that you would lower the spread rate, spread rate just about as well with the scarves and people would be going to work. Kids would be going to school. Uh, you know, life would be a lot more normal than it is now. Well, that's the reason. A, I, the reason I think that will work is if you look at the some countries where it's doing that are doing well, like Hong Kong and Singapore, you see everyone wearing masks. And they are doing well, and we've seen that in real time. And they're not seeing near the number of cases that we're seeing here with social distancing and keep having people stay at home. And even though they, their interaction with China was probably much stronger than ours. That's enormous. So we're, and you touch on something I want to dig into more, but let's stay with the masks for a moment. I mean, the, the, there's the health effect, but then there's the economic effect. 
and then there's the effect on our 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 freedoms and the, the the effect on our freedoms with these draconian orders has been enormous so if we were if we decided masks were the way to go i think you've suggested you know pay for a zillion surgical masks maybe some gloves and then we disperse with the masks and then the way you enforce it instead of arresting people for going out of their house is you say uh you know you're not wearing your mask, you know, that's against the law, put it on or we're going to we're going to haul you away. Is that basically the model? Or or there could be a fine. Uh, but I think it's important to say that we don't need to wait for, for masks to be produced. And we certainly don't need to take them away from healthcare workers. So these N95 masks are the most effective at, let's say, preventing me from getting your sickness. But I think that something like this is adequate for preventing my sickness from getting out among other people. And so if both of us have scarves, that may be as good as one of us wearing a top quality mask and the other keeping their face naked. Well, in Hong Kong, uh, as I understand it, they wear the mask because they want to protect other people from the fact that they may have the disease, and it's not to protect yourself from getting the disease; it's it's to protect others. So it's a very social, different socially dynamic, different dynamic yeah, than uh, exactly. self protection. It's interesting that you know Western Europeans and Americans. You know, when you think about a mask, will a mask work? We ask, will it work for me? Will it keep me from getting somebody else's disease? And I think it may be a more of an Asian cultural thing to say, will I? help my community by wearing this and but we have to get into that mindset i believe so is there do you have a line of action i mean who do we what do we get to anthony fauci or who do we who do we who do we who do we get to here to to to, to push this idea um somebody i mean we you know you, you talk about you know trump appearing with his advisors my daydream is to have Trump walk out for those press conferences with all the advisors and everyone's wearing like a cowboy neckerchief, you know, like the old cowboy <laughs> movies where they keep the dust out of their face. And they set an example and they, they change the direction of this country. But I, I don't know how we get from here to there. Well, I'm sure the Donald would like to have some Trump neckerchiefs and Trump Trump uh, bandanas. I mean, he, they could be a real branding opportunity. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Maga. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that fits well. Well, you've been uh, following this, you know, for, for the last six six weeks or so since it first came, became uh, uh, an issue. Where do you think we are? Where do you think we are in terms of flattening the curve, uh, bringing this, uh, you know, arresting the the, the health uh, risks that uh, that exist right now? Well. Again, we don't know. We don't have the data. Yeah. I'll take my intuition is that we're doing better than we realize. And that's because of this lag problem. You know, if my neighbor isn't getting his test results for six days, that means that any step that you took five days ago isn't affecting the data. Um, so, so Mike, and the other thing we don't know is how many people have had it and are already immune. No, no one's even tracking that. There may be good news there. I have no idea. So, but if I had to guess, I would guess that the news will be better than we're expecting based on just simple extrapolation over the next couple of weeks. 
So the other big idea that you have on the economic front is there, there's a better way to provide a financial backstop to businesses, uh, both small, medium-sized businesses, and also the individual uh, citizen than, than maybe the plans that we've got being rolled out now under the $2 trillion uh, bill signed uh, last week. You want to talk about that? Sure. And actually, I was lucky. I don't know if you noticed on Friday, the Wall Street Journal, uh, somebody, uh, you know, surprised me by quoting the... Uh, it, it was an excellent, it was an excellent piece, highly recommended. It was in the Wall Street Journal. And it was, it was written by, I think, the guy, the man who runs the uh, a foundation in Texas, the uh, something uh, Public Policy Institute. And he took your idea and got, got it in the journal. But did it end up in the bill that was passed on Friday? Uh, no, it did not. So let me let me go over the idea. The um, imagine that you've had two months worth of receipts going into your checking account. If you're a business, if you're a small business, you might have deposited two hundred thousand dollars over, let's say, January and February. Or if you're an individual and you you're making sixty thousand dollars a year, you made. You check deposited five thousand dollars worth of paychecks in January and another five thousand in February. So take whatever that is, take whatever your receipts were, and the bank would give you a credit line with a sort of a moderate moderate interest rate, not too high, not too low, uh, a credit line for that amount, backed by the federal government, because that seems like the lenders are doing the opposite of what I want. Instead of giving you know, reasonable credit to people, They're, they seem to be tightening it up. But so have the government absolutely guarantee the credit line and tell, you know, have the Fed jawbone the banks to give people that kind of a credit line. So what that, that has a few advantages over other things. One is there are a lot of people who just don't need the money. They can ride it out. And so you don't use your credit line. Uh, the other advantage is uh, we're worried about people not being able to pay rent or pay utilities or pay monthly bills. And uh, so how do you stop that? And, and people's first thought is, oh, well, let's just forgive rent. Well, what does that do to the small landlord you know, who's got a loan and has got to make their, their mortgage? Then you have to go out and tell the bank, well, let, you know, let them miss their mortgage payment. So I want to get around all that and just let people pay their monthly bills let the small businesses meet payroll out of these credit lines. Uh, so that's my thought. It's not perfect, but uh, it, I think it would solve a lot of problems and it doesn't require this huge expenditure of money and it doesn't involve a direct bailout. People just get a credit line and they can, they get a loan and that's what, so, what so if, so if I, if I can understand the, the big idea, let's say they're, 200 million people with checking accounts or, I don't know, 250 million people in America that have checking accounts, every single one of those people would have a line of credit backing their individual checking account. And the amount of the line of credit would be, say, the last two to three months of deposits into that account. So if you deposited, say, 40000 over that period of time, you'd have a line of credit for that much. And the banks would have that as they disperse the money, that money would either be directly funded by the government or or backed up with like an FDIC guarantee or or, or something like that, so they'd know they'd get re, um, re repaid. And then small businesses would have the same line of credit based on 
um, their deposits into their checking accounts. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Yes. So the restaurant doesn't have to go declare say it's out of business. It can say, "All right, I, I, we can pay our rent. Uh, we can keep some of our people on payroll, and we'll repay it when we get back in business." Yeah, I, you know the way this is hitting people is disproportionately among uh, those that are that are kind of the less well uh, off in society. I, you know, I'm, a friend of mine's a golf caddy, and I talked with him last week, and you know he's living hand to mouth basically on tips he gets as a caddy. Well, they in Maryland we've shut they've shut down the golf courses, so he has no income, and yet he had a pretty good income until this happened. But now he's cut off with nothing. So this would this would be a direct relief for him. And a lot of other people like him in the gig economy or, or in the, say, the bottom half of, uh, of, our, of the country. Yes. And then, you know, there are some people who will need actual relief. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. they, they can't just they need more than a loan. But you have time to figure that out rather than just rushing checks out to everybody willy nilly. Well, you know, I was looking at the SBA program that they that they put in the two trillion dollar budget. And I was surprised that looked pretty good. It it seemed to have a lot less uh, bureaucracy associated with it. Yet the very fact that it's got to go through the SBA means there's going to be a big bottleneck. Is, is have you looked at that? As I, the last I heard, that may be administered by the banks and not the SBA directly, which might make that not dissimilar to what you're proposing for small businesses. Right. That is getting close to what to what I proposed. Um, but, um, you know, the, I think what I proposed is administratively about as simple as you could get. I think yeah, if, exactly. if the Fed just says to the banks or, the, you know, whoever's, you know, the banks have different regulators, but let's say it's the Fed, says just as a jawboning thing, give these people credit lines uh, and, you know, Congress will, will vote to back them up with taxpayer money if need be. And, you know, that that's about as administratively simple as you get because the bank the bank can calculate how much you deposited they know that they there's no uh, there's no application process to the government it's just you know there you have it but uh having said that i mean that's the uh the, the small business credit line you know credit program is well I like your idea I like your idea better there's no bureaucracy there's no bureaucracy involved and it also goes directly to individuals not just to businesses so I, I think you you've got a bigger idea how we how we now work that into what we're doing is 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 the next uh, next thing to figure out the let's fast forward a bit we'll get through the health crisis uh, we will bail out enough businesses there'll be enough uh, enough uh, businesses that survive and thrive that the economy will start growing again. But you've written interestingly about uh, normal, that uh, you know people talk about when we get back to normal. And you've written, and I agree, that what's going to be, what we're looking at in the future doesn't, the future normal does not look like last year's normal. You want to talk well, about that? Okay, there there are basically two reasons why things will be different. One is people's habits will change. I mean, look at what we're doing now. Um, a lot of people are doing are doing this, and at some, you know, yeah. people aren't people aren't going to give up on live in person meetings completely. 
but you can be sure they're going to cut back. We can assure that a lot of businesses that are doing teleworking now are learning about what works and what doesn't work. Um, so I think, I think they're going to be just those kinds of changes. So social spacing, I, I, I talked about this on an earlier show that if you look at things like the drug supply chain, um, that's going to change. We, you know, we don't know, for example, where our drugs are manufactured. That needs to be determined. I mean, the manufacturers do, but the consumer doesn't. Doctors don't. And also, we've got an awful lot of critical drugs and, and technology subcomponents sub manufactured in China. You talked about how people, our supply chain's been built for efficiency and low cost. Now it's going to be built for robustness and uh, and, uh, and 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 concerns about safety. Yeah, that's and that's an interesting question: is how much people will shift to make things less fragile. One, you know, the fragility of the supply chains is something we're experiencing now, and the question is. You know, over time, will people forget that that fragile supply chains are dangerous? I mean, people are under pressure always to cut costs and compete, um, and it may be you know tempting to go for efficiency at the cost of fragility. I think most importantly, it'll be interesting to see if there's any change in the use of debt by households and businesses. Um, because you could argue that there's really not much of an excuse for people not to be able to get by for a month. I mean, it's one thing if you have very low income, I understand that, but, but you know, airlines do not have very low incomes, but they just run highly levered businesses with their planes financed by debt. And a lot of businesses run that way. Banks, of course, have been running that way for a long time. And uh, we've got to think about how we're setting up the incentives for individuals and businesses uh, to be so highly levered and run in such a fragile state. It, it, that, that, that's a question going forward. And I think that's, that ha there's a lot of, of uh, policy factors that will determine that. Well, I've, I've, you and I, we're talking before we went on. You, you're a you, you're a folk dancer, and that's a pretty social activity. And you mentioned that you were organizing your folk dancing groups via Zoom, and uh, that's uh, you, you think that's gonna that's gonna last, or do you think we're gonna finally get people back in the in the hall to dance together, with new um, rules about how close you can be next to each no, other? <laughs> no, um, no, I don't think. I think eventually we'll go even go back to the old rules, but uh, I think people have seen some possibilities that in that, I mean, this is just a bit off topic, but maybe an interesting example. Like um, it was sort of fun the other day when a, a choreographer who lives thousands of miles away, quote unquote, dropped in on a session that I, I was at, and we had just a little banter back and forth where I said, you know, don't do his dance yet because there's somebody I know who's coming on later who likes his dance. And then she, she shows up and I say, all right, now we can do his dance. And the session leader says, what, what are you time stamping your requests? And it was just, you know, uh, but you could see something like that happening 
at a real dance session. I'm sure what we're going to see in the future is something we hadn't seen before of somebody <laughs> sticking a screen up on the, uh, on the wall during a dance session and showing somebody else's dance session and people just kind of mingling across uh, continents. Well, do we end up with a smaller economy because of this or a different economy? Um, I'm going to say a different economy. I like to use the analogy of the Second World War as an example uh, of sort of, you know, what's the, what's the economic precedent for this? Um, so the Second World War, we had to reallocate a lot of resources very quickly, both getting into the war and then at the end of the war as, you know, these millions of troops get, uh, you know, the GIs come home and the factories no longer need to produce tanks. And it was amazing how rapid and how relatively painless that readjustment was. That, that, that aspect makes me fairly optimistic that when we can, you know, when they say, ollie ollie in free or whatever, uh, I'm probably most of your audience is too young to remember that. I don't. Right. I remember. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, they don't let kids play tag anymore. No, but, um, but um, you know, when, when they say that, uh, I think that the economy will probably snap back much more quickly than all these Keynesians worry about. I they do, worry. too. I, 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 I so agree. I, I think people are entrepreneurs are already figuring out how to uh, how to take advantage of this. The cruise lines are going to change the configuration of their ships. Uh, you know, the airlines, I think you're right. The corporations that are highly levered are going to have to rethink uh, rethink that financing model. And, you know, and education is an interesting area where I've been a proponent of, of online education and, and, and more homeschooling. And that's happening right now because of this virus. And it's interesting, interesting to see the reaction. Like, like, you know, some people, I've seen some Facebook people ranting about, you know, I don't know how to do this homework. I can't help my kid with this homework. So well, some but there's, people will but, love it and some people won't. But, but, but I'm an entrepreneur, of, so are you, of ideas. And where the way I see it is that there'll be an industry uh, for homeschooling tutors that could come in to help people with their homeschooling problem. You and go. you can also, they would come with a skill set about how to access interesting online material. The, the threat to this, though, is to the existing education establishment. And Oregon has now banned online uh, learning because they're afraid it's going to hurt the, the funding of the of the existing public schools once this returns to you know normal, which we don't think is going to be the same thing as the old normal. So already there are people saying, "Gee, this could really uh, gore gore our our ox here." And I, I think a lot of good could come out of this as we rearrange uh, the way we used to do things. Yeah. Well, again, the Second World War produced a lot of. Uh, useful changes. I mean, we've discovered that we could have women in the labor force and back out. So, uh, Well, I want to end on an optimistic note, but I really just can't quite do that because we're also borrowing a lot of money. We're, we're, I don't know who we're borrowing it from, but we've got, when you consider the leverage through the, um, through the banks, we've actually got a $6 trillion package, not a $2 trillion package. What do you, what do you think this does to our fiscal house? Well, it, it brings it, I think, you know, one step closer to catching uh, what I call the inflation virus. Um, you know, we're, we're 
in one way we could have paid for this. We could have said, all right, we're going to have a $2 trillion fiscal stimulus, but here are the tax increases that are coming in 2021, 2022, 2023, and that's what's going to uh, ensure that, that we do this in a balanced budget way. We did not enact $1 of future tax increases. So it's all being paid for by borrowing and borrowing, I think, I mean, it's so convoluted now with the Fed entering the picture, but I think it's, I think of it as basically we're printing money and that money isn't gonna circulate now because no one can get out, but over the next year or so, uh, it will. And you can't, and this, the amount of the increase is way beyond what we had in 2008. The economy is not as weak in terms of demand as it was in 2008. So I think when, when this money works its way into the economy, yeah, prices are really going to start to go up. And the reason I call that a virus is that people change their behavior during inflation. You and I were around in the 1970s. Mm. You didn't, you didn't keep your money in cash or a checking account because it was losing value. And so the velocity of money goes up when there's when people see inflation and that adds to inflation. And then interest rates go up. And then the government has to print more money because with interest rates go up, uh, the interest payments on the government debt start to be a huge component of spending. And so you get the so that's my uh, dire scenario for you know for three or four years out is that we find ourselves with uh, an inflation virus that's uh, hard to control well i as again i'm a i guess i'm basically an optimist i think what we did was draconian and but but necessary and you know i think we'll deal with this next year once we've got things back in order and we're people are back at work uh uh, don't I don't have a solution right now. I'm gonna call I'm gonna call Arnold Block Arnold Kling for a solution. But uh, I, I think that's I would, next would, year's problem, not this one. Yeah. I, well, but I think I would feel better if if they had the stomach to enact those future tax yeah. increases or spending cuts now rather than pretend that they'll never have to do it because. That's my fear is that they'll act as if they never have to do it. I mean, the, the Fed never reduced its balance sheet after 2008. Yeah, so. yeah well, I agree. Uh, of course, we did manage to keep a lot of bad stuff out of that bill that uh, Pelosi wanted to put in, which uh, which is a win in some ways. Yeah. Well, Arnold, I've, I've, I've just loved talking with you about this, and uh, I'm, I encourage everybody to keep reading Arnold's blog, the arnoldkling.com slash blog. Every day, two or three interesting, uh, interesting thoughts about things, and I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with you in a few months when this, when this settles out, and uh, we can figure out lines of action to go forward. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. Okay, Arnold. Great talking with you, and uh, uh, hopefully, I'll see you on the folk dancing floor sometime soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Okay, you've been watching The Bill Walton Show. You can uh, find us on YouTube and all the major podcast platforms and uh, looking forward to having you join me in the next show. So thanks much. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.